0: Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmidt the Clam. I'm also known as Schmidt the Champ, and I am also, also thrilled to bring you this live episode of the Cracked Podcast from the London Podcast Festival. I think the intro in the room sets it up really well. Uh, Only two other things to tell you. One is that there are some visual aids that we showed people in the episode. Uh, Those are handily linked in a very uh, easy-to-figure-out way in the footnotes. Also, you don't need to stop and look at them if you're driving or whatever. We describe them fully, and and you'll be fine if you can't look at them, too. And the other thing, uh, stick around in the footnotes uh, that I describe in this episode uh, at the end there, because there will be a very interesting additional whole story to go with it. So without further ado, please sit back or keep standing perfectly still outside Buckingham Palace while surreptitiously listening to podcasts, you sneaky British palace guard, you. Good good job. Good uh, good on ya. Is that what they say? No, not even their accent. Either way, here's this episode of The Cracked Podcast with comedians Olga Koch and Robin Ince and our wonderful audience at the London Podcast Festival. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. And the topic tonight is little-known, funny and strange stories from the lives of great scientists. So that's pretty exciting, right? Give it up for that, scientists. Yeah. So I've been to London once before, uh, and I, I associate your country with science very strongly, because uh, before I came to London, I was talking to a friend of mine who was becoming a professor of education. They were being uh, someone who teaches teachers. Uh, and they do it in the U.S., so they were saying, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I was like, what do you mean? And they said, I need to teach people how to be science teachers, but I need to figure out, like, a track for the people whose jobs will let them talk about evolution, and then, and then like, the other track, uh, the, other, the other situation. And I was like, no, oh, yeah, this is an interesting country we have. And then I get on a plane, and I come to London, and Darwin is on money. It's I. <laughs> pretty neat and a lady they got everything <laughs> everything on the money uh so it was very exciting i bought beer with it at age 20 i was in heaven I was it was really good and so I, I, I one of the things that i think is the greatest about the uk uh, among other things is uh, that commitment to science and that excitement about it uh, so we've got stories today about scientists and we have amazing guests would you like to see him how about i bring them out how does that sound yeah. oh yeah your enthusiasm is very good now Um, first up uh, she's a fantastic comedian who's uh, fresh off the Edinburgh Fringe she was chosen best newcomer at last year's festival you've also seen her on Mock the Week News Jack and more please give a warm welcome to Olga Koch yeah come on in
1: yeah Hello, everyone. I feel the need to say that I was merely nominated, but thank you very much. Oh. (laughs) Should I leave?
0: (laughs) I'm still learning exchange rates and things, so you gotta... uh, But I'm sorry about that. And thank you so much for being here. Thank Um, you so much for having me. And uh, I would also like to welcome our other guest tonight. Uh, His book is I Am a Joke and So Are You. You know him from all over just the entire world of comedy and from his show The Infinite Monkey Cage as well. Please put your hands together for Robin Ince.
2: I'm so glad you said uh, before mentioning The Infinite Monkey Cage all over comedy because it meant immediately they would know oh it's not Brian Cox because <laughs> The Infinite Monkey Cage is going to be the pretty one no
0: it's the old one
2: <laughs>
0: I think you're both the pretty one <laughs> hey
2: man you got a way about you <laughs> let's do a Tennessee Williams play <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad you both are
0: here to, to dig into this with me. Also, uh, I, I am a stranger in this country. And am I right that uh, the UK has a, a particular passion to, for and commitment
2: to science and like an excitement about it and uh, and and takes pleasure in it? I wouldn't say any more than a lot of other, like when I go around America, I, I, I meet so many people who are passionate, but it is, I, I think we have a kind of a schism. We have an enormous number of people from like, seven to 98 years old who are really excited by science and like every other nation as well we have some real numbnuts who still think <laughs> the earth is flat and they're not going to you know, so there's a kind of because I think sometimes in America you know, people go oh America the number of people in America who think that the earth is only 6,000 years old well actually we've got all that going on in the UK as well but we have a lot of people I, I had a 10 year old come up to me at the Hay Festival and say sorry I just want to ask you a question after seeing that science show yeah. how can I check for sure that I'm not living in a dream <laughs> <laughs> and then <laughs> and that is beautiful, you know, that moment that and I, I sat down with this channel, I said, let's work out various tests and I don't think we've ever fully found a test as yet, you know. So Elon Musk might be right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: as an immigrant to to this country, I'd say yeah. that a big thing with science in the UK and I think just overall is because the museums are free.
2: Yeah, right? that is yeah. so cool. That is
1: and so you're just like, that's like a thing that you would do on an afternoon, whereas in a country where you would have to pay for it, it's just, it's a barrier for entry. Is that, I'm sorry, it's not, not oh, a no, funny yeah. answer, but <laughs> yes, yeah, so you'll just go hang out in the science museum to like, go like to hide from rain. And then you suddenly accidentally <laughs> learn a bunch of stuff.
0: Yeah, our U.S. museums are expensive. I don't know if you guys know that. Uh, and I, I remember that first time I came here when I was using Darwin to buy beer, I also uh, would just go into the British Museum. I was like, it's really free? And they were like, yeah, come on in. And then I started to feel like, oh, the, the price of admission is how much walking this is. Okay, <laughs> I see what's going on. Uh, but they are free, and That's wonderful. Yeah. Well, and, uh, and one, one scientist we have to talk about today is Darwin, because I think a lot of people know about him taking voyages and, and theorizing evolution. Uh, but also, uh, and we've got those images. Martin, if you could bring up slide eight, that would be great. Because uh, among other things that Darwin was into, he was into eating everything. Don't know if everyone knows that when he went on trips, uh, he would see something like the Rhea, which is above us back there, and want to eat it. He was in a club at Cambridge called the Glutton Club, where the point of the club was to eat strange meats that they'd never had before. Apparently it broke up because they tried an owl, and it was too gross.
1: Uh,
0: <laughs>
2: That's still the greatest photo I, I, that I think has been on the internet in the, in the last two months. I presume you've all seen it. I can't remember whether it's a barn owl or a tawny owl. Where, have you seen this image? No, I don't where know. They're basically Because you, you see an owl as a kind of a solid thing, a kind of doorstop of a bird. But actually, it turns out those feathers are merely garnish. And if lifted up, they have the legs of a kind of emaciated can-can dancer. So don't do this afterwards, right? Please do not kill any owls because of what I've said. But it's this incredible thing. So basically, the legs are really long. But you don't That's know. Crazy. You imagine them as just having little legs and a, and a solid body. No. The whole thing yeah. is nature tricking us again. <laughs> God damn you, mutation, heredity, and natural selection. You've done it again. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm imagining just all feathered animals.
0: It's, it's a confusing skeleton. Like you get down there and it's a horse. I don't know. Yeah. Like you're suddenly. Oh, well, what do you do?
1: It's just two boys on top of each other in a trench coat. <laughs>
0: And so he was in this club, and they just ate everything. And then as soon as Darwin was on the Beagle, sailing from place to place, he would just eat everything he could find. He ate a giant tortoise and tried drinking the fluid out of its bladder. Uh, They're our sponsor. Hold on. Um, Uh, He said, quote, the fluid was quite limpid and had only a very slightly bitter taste. Uh, So they are not our sponsor. Don't do it. But, and that particular animal is now called Darwin's Rhea because he, he uh, d- you know, helped Europeans notice it was around. And they apparently got partway through eating it as a group and then realized, oh, God, we got to keep some of the parts for, sa- for samples and science and so on. Uh, uh, don't, don't eat that. Don't eat that. Keep that because Darwin uh, was just out there to do science and eat everything.
2: Well, wasn't that the thing that actually that he only realised as he was halfway through eating it? Is that right? It was yeah. literally like halfway, hang on, this is the bird I've been looking for. I'm oh, really enjoying <laughs> it. Put it back in the bucket. The, uh, I think it's, yeah, that's a beautiful, I mean, he was such a, because of course he wasn't out there as a scientist, you know, he was out there as, as a companion was an official scientist on, on the Beagle really? he was meant to be captain there's a lovely story where uh, Captain Fitzroy who uh, initially did not want Charles Darwin as his companion um, because it was at the time of Victorian kind of physiognomy, you know, the, 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 the idea of the science of the face. And he said that he believed that Charles Darwin had the nose of a lazy man and therefore shouldn't come with him. And then Darwin wrote this letter, uh, basically defending his nose, and he wrote this beautiful thing in his journals where, fortunately I persuaded him that my nose spoke falsely, which I think is just an utterly beautiful line.
0: <laughs> Many of these stories, I feel like they're almost coming from... A pre-scientific era, some of them are like before the, the scientific method and so on, but there was a time when you would be doing experiments and also eating what you found and judging people's noses, and, and it, was, it was a wild time, the past. But that was, that was Darwin, that's amazing. I didn't know he had a lazy nose, it's good he's off money. Um, <laughs> let's look uh, way into the past now at Pythagoras, because uh, this is somebody who I think uh, people have heard of because of triangles. Right? That's the basic. One time for triangles. I don't know. You don't have to do that. You can if you want to. He was uh, a well-known scientist, or at least mathematician, in that way. But as far as actual uh, historians and historiography and looking at what he did, it turns out uh, that the triangle theorem that we all know him for uh, was discovered earlier in Babylon and in India and by Thales of Miletus, another, another Greek guy. So he didn't, he didn't do that thing. So he's like the
1: Steve Jobs of, <laughs> of geometry. He had the branding and the marketing, but not actually the inventions. And who do we remember now?
0: And then also, he was also the founder of a cult, and, and you don't think of him for that, because you think of him for triangles mostly. Uh, but we a lot of the history of what Pythagoras did is actually the Pythagorean cult uh, living all over the Mediterranean.
2: <laughs> Well, it is one of the things that I loved about the kind of geometry, and I think that for, for, for many people, maybe in this audience, and maybe listening now, you know, mathematics sometimes lo- didn't have the glamour. It, it, there's a way that it's taught in schools, that when you actually start to find out about it, its entire journey to our understanding of, of, of mathematics as the language of the universe. And there's things that I was reading about Pythagoras once, where he had, for instance, a thing called forbidden shapes. I don't know if you know about that, the, there were shapes. No. That were, the rhombus, I think, was a forbidden shape. And the idea that when we were trying to, you know, the, the maths teacher trying to get us interested, if he started, he goes, you must never go in that cupboard there. That is where I keep the forbidden shapes. Oh, that's great. If you are good enough at maths, maybe one day I will show you one of the forbidden shapes. And I think, you know, there's something there where... That, I mean, that's as you were saying, the interesting thing about science is, of course, at one point, it was just everything. It was kind of, so when it was natural philosophy, there was also madness you know, Aristotle, Aristotle seemed as this kind of great thinker, but he also, a lot of his ideas were, were just nuts. You yeah. know, and the, like the fact that he would talk about the fact, you know, women had fewer teeth than men. And you go, well, that's a re- that doesn't even require an experiment. That just requires <laughs> some, uh, because he, he didn't believe that anything should, no, you just think about it. I've just thought about it. Women have fewer teeth than men. Do you want to count? No, I don't want to count because i've (laughs) thought about it and it's real
0: (laughs) (laughs) there's also a there's another pythagorean thing one of their actual really amazing discoveries was musical intervals they were sort of the first group to figure out that if you lengthen or shorten strings you get different notes and there are set intervals between them amazing who needs triangles boring and then they also had many superstitions including those forbidden shapes which i'm very excited about Uh, they also believed that beans should not be eaten because every bean contains the soul of a dead person. Uh, (laughs) And as I understand it, you folks just eat beans on toast.
2: So that would be really hard. uh, It changes that scene in Blazing Saddles. Instead, that that now becomes a seance that you're hearing there. I hear my grandmother. (laughs) The... um, but that's—is it true? You all, you, you all know the bean farting scene, right? I just want to make sure. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes yeah, I just take it that Mel Brooks—we take it as Red, the, the man is yeah, yeah. such an <laughs> incredible genius. But I—you I, I, might be about to talk about this or not, but because I don't know if this is true—is it true that when Pythagoras was being hounded, when he was actually being chased, and the thing that actually led to his death, that he basically he didn't take the shortest route because it was across a field of beans, and therefore he would have destroyed the souls, and so he himself died. Is I don't know. This, this is um. Being quite, yeah. you know, I, well, I, I don't want to get, you know, Donald Trump fake newsing this bit of <laughs> Pythagorean
0: information. Because he's a weird guy where a lot of the stories are either about him or about his disciples. Because, again, he had a whole... There were, like, communes of Pythagoras supporters. <laughs> it was the whole thing. And then just legends, too. But it, it is there is a legend about him hearing a dog barking and thinking, I hear the soul of an old friend in the bark. Uh, And so I think he he just spent his day going around the world seeing and hearing souls all the time. (laughs) Uh, Which seems very distracting. I can't do it.
1: Also, you said that they discovered musical intervals.
0: Yeah, which is a really uh, substantial thing. So are you
1: here to suggest that white people have rhythm? (laughs) And in fact, discovered it.
0: I'm here to show you. No, I'm not doing (laughs) that. (laughs) The I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be very seated, actually. Uh, <laughs> but let's, uh, let's look at some other, other people as well. In particular, let's talk about Paracelsus. Uh, Paracelsus was a Swiss scientist who lived in the 1400s, 1500s, and he pioneered medicine. He, he figured out a lot of the basic ideas that like chemicals, if you take them, will help you with illnesses, if you pick the right chemicals. You know, it's, and that was innovative at the time. But he also believed you could grow a homunculus, uh, so it's a thing where you uh, he, he not only believed but claimed that you could grow a tiny person and the recipe and he wrote down a recipe and gave it to somebody with, with tips and everything was that you uh, take your sperm and you cook it in horse dung for 40 weeks uh, because that's because that's how long pregnancy takes it makes sense uh, <laughs> And then, quote, if now after this it be every day nourished and fed cautiously and prudently with an arcanum of human blood, it becomes, thenceforth, a true and living infant, having all the members of a child that is born from a woman, but much smaller.
1: I feel like shit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And let's get uh, slide number one as well, because it's just a fun uh, depiction of the play Faust, where where
2: that uh, kind of thing apparently happens. (laughs) Uh, and look, my favourite uh, homunculus is, has anyone here seen the film Bride of Frankenstein? It's, it's a remarkable piece of work 1935 Oh, someone, it's so beautiful and it's uh, directed by James Well Boris Karloff Ernest Thesiger, and oh. Ernest Thesiger plays Dr Pretorius who is a mad scientist who is really mad but he's pretty good at it and he makes lots of little figures little little like, and, and, they, and they live in little jars going ha 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 and he does like little Henry VIII one and he has all of it it's a really fantastic film <laughs> depending and on
1: the type of shit of the cow sorry no, no, I no, have to say that this sorry. thing because the
2: film was made in 1935 we don't see the first bit of him wanking and getting it in the shit <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting it in the oven. It's just straight to the jar. <laughs> but he, uh, it, it seems like
0: these, these scientists must have felt like they were working really hard, right? Like it's, it's like, I just have to gather the sperm and the dung, and I have to heat it and constantly feed it. And like, like As much as I was saying it seems like they're having fun before, it seems like it was still a crazy amount of labor.
1: Even. All men want is to jerk off for a higher purpose. Yes. <laughs> so you're just like this is for science. <laughs> to those at home, I just made a jerking off motion. Thank you very much.
2: But a noble one. Uh. That's what I love. I love the idea that someone won the Nobel Prize for that. And they went, and the winner of the Nobel Prize, not yet. Hang on a minute. <laughs> then you're, you're even working now. I don't stop. I don't stop from my working. <laughs>
0: Well, and let's, uh, let's stay in uh, Paracelsus' general era. We've also got Tycho Brahe here, who was in the 1500s and is, is probably the most famous scientist for having crazy stories about them all the time. If we can also get slide four, because uh, we'll see a replica of one of the most famous things about him. Tycho Brahe was in a duel at age 20 and lost part of his nose, and then he would go around wearing a prosthetic brass nose, and he would also carry a jar of adhesive just all the time, because it was constantly falling off and you put it back on and falling off and put it back on. And he's also one of the most important astronomers ever. There's, uh, so left, artist rendering, and then uh, on the right, he had a a brass nose like that because I guess in sword times, you
2: could just catch the nose and not the head. I don't know how that works. Captain Fitzroy would not have liked him. You don't even have the nose of a lazy man. You haven't even got a bloody nose. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was always told that it was a golden nose, that there was a kind of, the, the, the rumour, because he was a bon vivant and he had his own island, all these things, that he actually had a nose made of gold. And it was yeah. only when they then dug up the corpse, just to check on the nose, and that's when they found out it was, it was, it was a bronze nose.
0: Yes, and we will, we'll have a, a link for the audience at home, but yeah, that's that's what happened. And yeah, the rumor was, oh, Fancy Tycho had a gold nose, and then somebody checked recently, and he was full of shit. Uh, ah. It was a cheap brass nose. Yeah. But
1: I just love that the, the the thinking process behind carrying around a jar of paste to stick it back on isn't, I need more paste, and not, is that, and not, like, maybe I should make it out of literally anything else. <laughs>
2: like wood oh, or yeah. wax. Yeah. No. <laughs> Or like the one that, that Steve Martin has in the jerk. Do you remember yeah. when he invents those glasses with one handle that makes everyone um, cross-eyed? That would be a better way. Terrible for glasses. Like a ground
1: a nose with the with yeah.
2: Oh, that would be fantastic. <laughs> just
1: got the like, glasses and the the moustache.
2: Because then, the, if you the moustache, if that was the main piece for in terms of actually where it took the pressure, then you wouldn't have to worry about gluing to the nose, would you? Boom. Wow, these are great experiments we're giving you at home. You've got the shit out, you're doing the wanking, you're growing moustaches, everything's going on here. <laughs>
0: and, he, uh, and yeah, that was, so he had that going on on his face his whole adult life. And he was also abducted from his parents at age two by a wealthy childless uncle. And as far as we can tell, his parents never made an effort to get him back. It just seemed uh, fine to them. <laughs> Which is interesting, but then it inspired the, uh, the rest of his life, where he was one of the most important astronomers ever. And then also, his uh, student and assistant was Johannes Kepler, uh, who worked out a lot of the uh, heliocentric model of everything. And Brahe, as when he died, the fun story about Kepler is that Kepler wanted to carry on the work of Tycho Brahe and also discover new astronomical things. And he apparently did it by stealing all of Brahe's papers from Brahe's heirs. Because they, like, they, I guess, got them in the will and wanted them. And then uh, Kepler later said, quote, I confess that when Tycho died, I quickly took advantage of the absence or lack of circumspection of the heirs by taking the observations under my care or perhaps usurping them. <laughs> so some fun vocab in the process. of there, <laughs> It's nice. And, he, and it seems like Kepler was more normal because we've also got stuff about Brahe being a, a party animal. That's very fun.
2: Did he die because uh, he basically it was his rich food? It's, he basically some of him exploded inside, didn't it?
0: Yeah, I think. And and he he just tried to get through it, and then it was like a, a bladder issue. Yeah, mm. and he uh, he apparently partied a lot because Bray. He for one thing he was the one of the richest people of his time. He reportedly had so much money. He at one point had one percent of all of Denmark's wealth, just all of it. And the Danish king then gave him a private island for doing experiments on. And he had a a small person named Jep, who was his full-time jester and lived under his table. So, (laughs) see, that's how you overeat, is you're distracted by your own hired jester, I think. Right? It throws you. And he also had a pet European moose, and it liked to drink beer. And according to Brahe, at one point, it died after getting drunk and falling downstairs. Uh, (laughs) LAUGHTER and I wish
2: we had a clip. I really do. <laughs> uh. Was it the drunkenness that caused the moose to fall downstairs? Because because cows, as far as I know, can't walk down. I haven't done any of these experiments, but I, I they can't <laughs> they, they can't do stairs. But I wondered, either of you, I, if cows can't walk down stairs, was he? It wasn't because the moose was pissed. It's because the moose has not evolved to deal with stairs. Yeah,
1: we have a lot of questions. Why was a moose at the top of some stairs?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. How do you get there? Oh, man, that's seedy, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> ah, the poo didn't make a baby, but can I make a little moose baby? Maybe I can. <laughs> Will the species divide prevent me?
0: <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a little bit of uh, fun self-experimentation, uh, too, with this next person. Isaac Newton. Ah, what a scientist. And if we get slide number six, that would be great. Thank you. But Isaac Newton, we've got kind of two things about him here. And one of them is that he decided, why don't I explore the, the boundaries of the human eye, right? What happens with it? And so those are, those are his notes. That's, he, he put a sewing needle, just the biggest one he could find, quote, put it betwixt my eye and bone as near to the backside of my eye as I could. And, and then took all these, like, fucking notes as he did. Like... <laughs> Like, just writing down, like, I've put it farther, it's hurting more. Like, oh, like just God. tracking. Among, so in between all the amazing Newton things, uh, he was also doing this and writing it down and everything. I just love that
2: idea of going, oh, I need to write this down. Where have I put my pen?
0: Oh, yeah, in my eye. <laughs> this, oh, I need two pens for this experiment. Back to the drawing board. Three pens. <laughs> oh. yeah. but, and, uh, and then the other, the other amazing wild Newton thing is how much he liked alchemy. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Uh, the
1: expression, apple of my eye? <laughs> Isaac Newton with the Okay, all right. Come on. Continue, I'm sorry. I'm, I'll go.
0: That's also weird that with a lot of these people, I feel like like Pythagoras is most famous for the triangle thing he didn't do. Newton is probably most famous <laughs> for the apple thing that, as I understand it, didn't really happen. It, didn't happen. Were, it never hit him on the head or anything. Like A lot of these scientists are not famous for the crazy thing, or it's it's such a weird uh, thing in how we think about them.
2: As far as I know, the alchemy thing was kind of... No one really knew over, over the then ensuing centuries. As far as I know, it was Maynard Keynes, the, 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 the great economist, who one day went to an auction. And it was one of those weird auctions where he went, bag of stuff that Isaac Newton had. And he went, oh, I fancy having a bag of stuff that Isaac <laughs> Newton had. So he bought this kind of bag of stuff. And then he starts looking through, thinking he's going to find all of these other different kind of ideas of laws of motion. And instead he finds, recipe for gold. No, you know, and that's... And, and that, again, is that great thing, which is, of course, that was, you know, like, I think Newton you, was the thing he thought he'd be most remembered for was a book all about, I can't remember which gospel it was, Do you know, there was, there was one one of the, the he wrote this huge thing oh, I about, know. I think it was, you know, it might have been the gospel according the Matthew, and he went, that's what I'll be remembered for. Even religious people aren't really that bothered. They're still more interested in the fact that his mathematics got us to the moon. You know, that's a kind of that's one of those great things that when people sometimes go, "Oh, but science is wrong," and Newton was wrong. You go, "Yeah, Newton was wrong, but he was right enough to be able to get people to the moon. So that's a good wrong. That's a kind of that that that's a wrong which there are parameters where you go, and then after that, from when once we get into a quantum world, Newton we will not be using, but to land on the moon and see a tranquility, yes, we will.
0: Yeah. I lo- One time for Newton and everything he did. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. That's beautiful. Because he, with his interest in alchemy, it's another thing that I, th- I feel like a lot of just people in all of life, they're like, ah, this is the thing about me. And then uh, people uh, think of something else because we're like, oh, Newton, gravity and all these things, obviously. But he made millions of words worth of notes about his alchemical researches, about how to turn lead into gold. And uh, apparently... In the process of that, uh, he has a biogra- there's a biographer of Newton, Richard Westfall, who says that the alchemical tests about invisible forces acting at a distance might have been kind of a seed to realize invisible forces acting at a distance, like gravity are a thing we could theorize. And so he, he figured out gravity and was like, ah, I, I mainly fucked up. I didn't get alchemy <laughs> yeah. right at all. Nuts. Which is so weird. I love it. <laughs> Let's jump to some modern people. That's, that's a fun thing, right? Or at least 20th century. Richard Feynman, we have some stories about. Uh, woo for Richard Feynman, all right. Uh, he was an American physicist and, and uh, uh, was involved in also the Manhattan Project and many other things, and uh, he loved doing pranks at the Manhattan Project. He, uh, he would uh, go around and crack safes in the facility uh, and then change the combination without telling anybody. Um, LAUGHTER and apparently, I'm, I'm, uh, this is mainly coming from a cracked article by Amanda Manna and Steve Shapiro, uh, but apparently he would also, he would have some papers that had some secrets of the Manhattan Project, uh, which was to figure out nukes. And he, he would just leave them lying around the facility in an unsecure way to bother the people in charge of security. <laughs> Uh, as like a bit and then also he and his there's a really beautiful thing with Feynman where uh, he and his first wife were very in love and then also the Manhattan Project had a bunch of security protocols about how much you could talk to the outside world at all and so he and his wife created coded messages with elaborate like gag codes and they would send them back and forth in and out of the Manhattan Project just to mess with the people tracking that he was just a scamp the whole time while they were working on uh, again the atomic bomb (laughs)
2: <laughs> it is there's such a, I mean that's one of, he's, he's one of my heroes and I, I find him so there's again his logic is. I mean the story behind his wife by the way if, you, if you've never there's a, a, a beautiful book called What Do You Care What Other People Think which I don't know if either you read it, 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 the two things in it in particular there's the, the bit all about the investigation he did about the, the Challenger tragedy and the other main essay is all about his relationship with his wife who died very young from, from tuberculosis related illness but there are things like the fact that all of the scientists when they were going to go work in Los Alamos were told do not take the direct train to Los Alamos because if you take because then people are going to hang on a minute why are all of these scientists going to Los Alamos and spies will notice so of course Richard Feynman took the direct train to Los <laughs> Alamos because he knew that everyone else would go a different route you know that's a fantastic <laughs> piece of abstract thing and, and then and there's a beautiful story there's no jokes in this but it is a very beautiful story where his wife Arlene um, she gave him some pencils and I think they were just they were something like I love you putsy I can't remember exactly the thing but and he he was embarrassed because he was, he was a young man and he was embarrassed that he had these pencils, even though they loved each other very much. And, and uh-huh. he shaved off the I love you. And then she found out and she wrote this letter to him. And each one, what, what, you know, what's wrong with you, Dick Feynman? Warnuts to you. Warnuts to you. Pecans to you. Pecans to you. And he went, every single lie was basically nuts to you in a different way. And I got it then. <laughs> and I think that that is and his piece about that like, I just his, sorry um, I, what I love about him again is that reminder that for so many people we, we see science as this cold exercise and we forget about the amount of imagination that is involved in it you know that's what Einstein, Einstein said you know imagination can take you anywhere it's fine. And, and two of my favourite experiments he did was there was one where uh, I used to talk about this a lot it's one of my favourite things when he was still a student it was the coldest day of the year and uh, his, his roommate returned and the window was wide open and it was freezing and snow was blowing in and outside the window was Feynman leaning out, really precariously, with an enormous bowl of uh, jello which he was vigorously stirring. And his roommate said, "What on earth are you doing?" He said, "I just started to wonder: could jello set if constantly stirred at sub-zero temperatures? Right?" And, and he never published, so we don't know, you know. And then. And then one day he was making some spaghetti and he broke the spaghetti and he suddenly went, why does spaghetti break not into two pieces? What is it about the fact that it fractures into three or four pieces? And he said to his friends, he rang them up, he said, come round, bring as much spaghetti as you can. And they spent a whole evening just breaking spaghetti and trying to work out. And again, they never came to a conclusion, but they had a big fucking meal. You know, that's kind of... <laughs> and that... that excitement that perpetual I I was lucky enough there's a there's a guy who I met who who got to know him quite well when he was like 17 years old and he said wherever he went he was always interested in people he always wanted to know their story as well he was always looking at things and going why is that doing that didn't matter that it wasn't going to win him a second Nobel Prize he wanted to just know why stuff was as it was and I think that is is such a, a beautiful thing
0: that's incredible. And also, the, uh, that through line, I think it's kind of throughout a lot. I mean, obviously, it's, it's the passion that gets you into science. We've got one that's uh, maybe apocryphal, maybe real story about Francis Bacon, uh, who was the, the sort of father of the scientific method. And the story of his death is that he was on a carriage ride with the royal physician in Highgate. Folks know Highgate, right? Hey, we're in London. Um, <laughs> And uh, it was winter, and they were arguing about how to preserve food, like how to, how to keep it cold. And he was like, I'll try it. And so he went and got a chicken from somebody, killed it, and then tried to pack it in snow. And then the story is he dies of pneumonia because uh, he got too cold. <laughs> but then the, the thing that sprung from that is people keep seeing a ghost sighting in that neighborhood of him. Uh, no, the chicken. They see a ghost chicken... <laughs> squagging around i guess like like people, soldiers in the blitz would see it and and, and people walking in the 70s and, and decades to now have seen it and it is a very believable story because i th- i think a lot of scientists have that habit where they're like i got to try the spaghetti i got to try the jello i just got to mess with stuff yeah.
2: why did the chicken cross the road because francis bacon was right behind him going i want to put this snow up your ass <laughs> <laughs>
0: i i hope that was his voice i really do <laughs>
2: I'm wearing, by the way, if you have not, I am also wearing my Carl Sagan T-shirt today, done in the style of Slayer. So here's to Sagan and... Uh, Hail Sagan! Sagan lives! Um, the... And my two favorite, because I, I, I do very, very niche impressions, and I, the first impression I ever did was just Carl Sagan talking about the universes, everything there is, everything there was, and everything there ever will be. And then the other one I realized I could do is Richard Feynman, when he has a cold. I have a friend who's an artist, and sometimes he says something I don't agree with too well, but I can only do him with a cold.
1: And... Uh,
2: <laughs> I'm trying to think of different scientists. like Later on, I'll be doing Albert Einstein constipated.
1: <laughs> Here's
2: Max Planck with a Veruca <laughs> If there are ever very specific radio plays, like you're in, that's so great. I'm uh. writing them all the time. <laughs> Hello, is that the BBC? I've written another of my overly specific plays. Well, fuck you. <laughs> oh, sorry. sorry. I've been in all day, and this is my first bit out, and I'm just overly excited. <laughs>
0: Folks, we want to tell you about a new podcast that you might enjoy. It's called Lost at the Smithsonian. It's a pop culture history podcast exploring the little-known stories behind iconic artifacts from the National Museum of American History. Follow the host of the show, who is Asif Mondvi. you know, from The Daily Show. He's great, very funny. And he's inside the National Museum of American History as he shares smart and fascinating insights into cultural items like Fonzie's leather jacket and Dorothy's ruby slippers. You know, the the, uh, cultural treasure kind of stuff. Asif is joined by National Museum of American History curators and also celebs as he traces just how these special objects came to define our culture in surprising ways. You can listen and subscribe to Lost at the Smithsonian right now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Let's also look at uh, Buckminster Fuller here. And if we could get slide nine, that would be great. Buckminster Fuller was another American scientist, 20th century. And what he did is he created that. And that is a journal of 65 years of his life in 15-minute increments. Um, And so that is... Actually,
1: no, that's my Twitter archive. I think that's (laughs) a a different photo. (laughs)
0: And uh, and so that is one part of it's all housed at Stanford uh, and that's just a little bit of it. And you, you know it's one of those big libraries because he's on one of those lift thingies <laughs> to go around the shelves. And uh, the, uh, he called it the Dymaxion Chronophile. It's 140,000 pages. It's 1,700 hours of audio and video. And it's a total of 1,400 linear feet of just material, uh, of just stuff Bus- Buckminster Fuller did uh, in his day and in his life. And it includes everything from his letters to newspaper clippings he found interesting to his dry cleaning bills uh, are just in there. So you know exactly when his, his suits were nice. Uh, you, you know, because he just kept all of it. And as far as people know, it's the most journaled and tracked life uh, in human history.
1: That's it. As a Russian person, it's comforting to see someone be their own police state. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I love it. Buckminster Fuller was such a, a great and interesting man. I, yeah. I love the, the fact he used to call this spaceship Earth. He said, you know, people want to be on a spaceship. We are on a spaceship. We are travelling through the universe. We are. And there's, there was a, a wonderful, I can't remember which book it was in, where he, he's, it was a lecture he gave where he started talking about the fact if, if you had a, a, a steel ball bearing that was about the size of a ping pong ball, if you breathe on it briefly, the condensation that appears is the same depth of the oceans and the, of the depth of where all life on earth is. And that's just a beautiful little thing that you can oh do where God. you just, if you get something like that. And again, that, that the, the mixture of spaceship earth and those kind of just little simple experiments, the, the constant reminder of the fragility of these things, the thinness of the patina, I think is just, just great.
0: He also spent, I feel like equal time writing that down and logging his dry cleaning. It's <laughs> <laughs> bizarre to me. Like he had the mental room for geodesic domes and all this. And also 15 minutes. I peed you know, or like whatever he did. I don't well, know.
1: If, if we're basing on this, like if Newton did all this stuff and then like 1% of it was good and 99% of it was complete <laughs> bullshit, this right? is a great way to be like, some of it is good. I just don't know what it is yet. Here's my dry cleaning. Oh yeah. Just track it all. <laughs> Find the genius. That's your job.
0: <laughs> In terms of other, other people here, uh, there's an uh, interesting story about uh, Louis Pasteur, uh, the, the extremely famous French scientist. And he, at one point, had a job where he was like a mean college dean. I don't know if you guys have Animal House out here, uh, but it's, it's like, like a dean wormer type. And he uh, was in charge of scientific studies at École Normale Supérieure in Paris uh, from, uh, for about a decade, 1858-1867. And according to a biography of him by Patrice de Brocq, he had extremely strict rules for the students all the time. At one point, they served the students a mutton stew for, for their meal. The students said, This is too disgusting to eat. And Pasteur was like, To punish you for that, it's every Monday dinner now. It's just every week we're going to serve this because I'm mean. That was it. Uh, he also put in a smoking ban at one point. The punishment was expulsion. He told the students openly that he didn't care if it was too extreme and 73 out of 80 of them left the school. They just quit. <laughs> uh, so in between figuring out pasteurization and things, uh, he was uh, real mean, but in a really specific, strange way. I don't get it.
2: That, I, I think you know, sometimes when people have a very, very kind of you know specific areas you can find that in terms of their ability to to socialize and 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 human i mean i've said that jokingly before about you know brian cox that you know that as, as a physicist he has a tremendous understanding of cosmology on the large scale and of subatomic particles the human scale he can find more difficult and you know making <laughs> cups of tea crossing the road and remembering to get all the way to the other side before thinking about muons and gluons you know things like that and and I think of you know th- there was a, a, a great mathematician Gödel Gödel's incompleteness theorem you know yeah. and and he was both a genius. And he used to walk with Albert Einstein. A lot. Einstein was what I think almost the only person he ended up having a social relationship with. Again, I might be wrong on that, but they they had long walks um, in Princeton. And and but he was constantly paranoid he was constantly thinking if another mathematician was coming into town they were coming to steal his maths you know all of this was going on and he would only eat his his, his entire diet was uh butter baby food and laxative you know and that that is someone with a lot of other things on their mind isn't it how can i shorten all of these processes as quickly as possible yum 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 take the pills that's that done right you know and that's so that I, i think that's interesting sometimes that human relationship when you have alternative obsessions Wow. and mean you give people shit mutton stew <laughs>
3: was that he...
2: accidentally off point it may well have been do you know what it's an unusual thing no, for me it's even to worry night. about the fact because i've very rarely been on point i what happens is you say this some words and my brain goes generated thing in head no idea of connection neurons <laughs> release you know and that's basically what happens we're on we're on track it's a it's a podcast yeah. <laughs> it's going great uh well, in his it. eyes what he was really saying was there's an editing process. <laughs> <laughs> nah.
0: Well because uh Kurt Gödel this, this uh Austrian mathematician, you, you said he only ate baby food, laxative, and butter. Yeah. That's it. Uh that's Huel. Uh, <laughs>
2: I'm yeah, I'm jealous. Let's do it. Um, I think he was genuinely worried about being poisoned by the mathematicians. He thought that if he kept it that simple in terms of his eating, the other mathematicians wouldn't be able to poison him and steal all his stuff.
1: Or no one can prank <laughs> him with laxatives because he's, yeah. he's eating his own. <laughs> <laughs> Just victoriously taking laxatives.
0: <laughs> and with the, the daily life... Just getting through stuff.
2: Uh, uh, Robin, you also picked up Paul Erdős. I think it is. Uh, yeah, is, I, I uh, think it's. I think it's actually pronounced Erdish. I'm not oh, so the, the Erdish number. Some of you, well, I'm sure, will be aware so, the, the Erdish number, which was he was just this in, in, incredible mathematician. Who there are mathematicians alive now who still have an Erdish number, and the Erdish number, for those who don't know, is basically you know it's such yeah, a cool yeah, thing, isn't yeah, it? It's very cool. He, he he basically he did maths with so many different people that an Erdős number of one basically means you did an, uh, a paper with him. You actually wrote something with him. Then there's an Erdős oh. number of two, which means you wrote a paper with someone who wrote a paper with Erdős, like and it goes Kevin up and Reagan up like this. Of
1: Mare. It oh. is.
2: It is. The Kevin Bacon, yeah. And, and what he would do was he would literally just, he would turn up to a mathematician's house. He had a carrier bag and he had a little suitcase. And he just went from town to town to town. And he would knock on their door and he would go, Hello, is your mind ready? And the mathematician would go, uh, uh, Yes, bloody hell, it's Paul. It's bloody hell. You know, and, and then they would go upstairs. It would be a Friday. And he would just sit with his mathematician and Here's another thing, here's another thing. And go, oh, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And then by the Sunday, the other master, I've got nothing left. Thank you then. Bye bye. And he would kind of leave. Like, you know, David Banner in in The Incredible Hulk or The Fugitive or or The Littlest Hobo. You know, he would do, you know, do-do-do-do, do-do-do-do. But, of course, because he was constantly doing maths, it was like someone eventually came in and they said, by the way, you've also got an enormous amount of money. We need to do things with this. You're just wandering around with a carrier bag. But he had no other life skills because he he was so brilliant. So one of his friends uh, once went out. There was, uh, he, he thought, I can leave Paul for an hour. It'll be fine. You'll just be doing some maths. And so he popped out. And he came back an hour later, and he opened the door, and there was his kitchen, and he just went, oh, my God, the kitchen is just covered in blood. Oh, no, what's Paul done? And then he looked, and he, and he noticed it came from the fridge. And he went, oh. And he just went out, and he opened the fridge, and there was just a carton of tomato juice, which had been repeatedly stabbed. And what had happened is Paul Eddish had gone, doing maths, thirsty, oh, I need drink. <laughs> How does drink open? <laughs> nice. stab, stab, stab. <laughs> glug, glug, glug. close. And that was it, you know, and that's... <laughs> And it's, I, I think there's something very... You know, people really liked it, but it's probably very, very beautiful about... I have no time for anything else, because I'm just doing maths. <laughs> <laughs> I still argue there's, a, there's a, 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 a wonderful mathematician called Matt Parker, who's written a great book called Humble Pie, and I, and I still quite often, when you sit around, you go, which area of the sciences has the most kind of really, truly eccentric, bordering on insanity? Oh. And I, and I think, you know, mathematics Man. has... Th- there's the, the obsession within the patterns, within the numbers, I think, can, can lead to... Well, it can actually genuinely lead to the madhouse as well. You know, there are quite a few who, who that is what happened to them. That's now a very bleak ending. It started off really upbeat, <laughs> I stabbing tomato juice. It's gone all over the kitchen. And then a lot of them go mad. Oh. <laughs> well, cut that second bit out, right? Just, okay. just go up to the bit with the tomato juice. Okay. okay. And then... Mathematicians are brilliant. There we go. That's... <laughs> that's fine.
0: <laughs> and Olga, you, you lit, it seemed like you lit up at the Erdős number. And, and you, you were saying before that you, you've just done a show all about computer science and tied to all of that. Yes. Yeah.
1: I studied computer science at university. Yeah. And um, just d- like computers and things. Huge fan.
0: And it, and it sounds like he's still relevant to all this. this, but he was, he was working uh, decades ago, and just uh, he, uh, and that's amazing that he's written so much while he was suitcasing from house to house stabbing foods. Uh, that's the greatest thing in the world, that's amazing.
2: What drew you to, because I, I, I do find, it's one of, like many areas of science, computer science, the, the idea of you know, the, the structure of algorithms, the, the, the uh, achievement of you know, knowledge being generated, and, and then also, because in, in the show you did, you're you're kinda of building something I built my ex boyfriend,
1: but as an AI. <laughs> oh, you were building...
2: I thought you were building a new, better boyfriend instead. Oh, you're, God, no. Oh, right. So how does that... Can you... Can you i, I How does this work, then? So- oh, it's
1: just basically a, predicti- a predictive text uh, program that is, I just uploaded all of the text that I had of him, which is, like, all oh, emails, conversations, his nine years' worth of his Twitter, and then he just learned the cadence of his speech and, and knew the sequencing of the words he used, so I could just talk to him and tell him what a dick he is. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Oh. <laughs> <Hell yeah. laughs>
2: I love when revenge has an equation that's just such <laughs> a great thing
1: yeah, you get home drunk you just power up your laptop and <laughs> you just go
2: in <laughs> just a donut in hand and another thing <laughs> so it's kind of a show but when the hour of the show is finished, you then will be doing it also for the next 17 hours of the day as well. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine yourself See, instead dating something like Hal? <laughs> <You know? laughs>
1: yeah, I wonder which of all the, who's the most fanciable um, AI in all of science fiction?
2: I think that- Oh, who are... was, it? What was it? Who?
1: So... Oh, oh Kit's yeah. hot. Kit's a fug boy. It's like a one night stand situation. <laughs> I think that the, the the Computer and Liar in, by Isaac Asimov, that short story, he would always tell me what I wanted to hear. Yes, please. <laughs> Are people familiar with that story? Read it. It's very short and very good.
2: And we'll link it for a uh, feature audience. Yeah. It's great. Um, you're right. A lot of the kind of British television AI would just not be someone you date because they're all kind of like, slightly bitchy professors at the end of their tenure. You know, things like Aurac and Zen from the TV series Blake 7 or K9 from Doctor Who. They always have voices like this. (laughs) Thank you, master. (laughs) No. Oh, no. (laughs) Get out from under my duvet. (laughs) No, master. (laughs) Oh,
1: yeah. I don't want like C-3PO to make me eggs in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) What a sound bite <laughs>
2: Oh I love that That used to be For some reason My son of my stupid impressions I used to do C-3PO Turning into Richard Dawkins
1: Can we hear it? Bro? Yeah it I, goes, mean, goes, I gotta goes, hear it
2: Oh for heaven's sake R2 How many more times Have I told you Yahweh is a fictional god <laughs> <laughs> Do it again dad Do it again I only get half of the reference But it doesn't matter <laughs> Well, and uh, we we have more stories
0: for you, but also uh, this this the uh, it's kind of a Q and A. But if there's any of you who have a, a story about a, a scientist and their, their crazy, amazing, strange life that you want to share, while the mic is traveling to you, we uh, we should look quick at Santoro Santori, and if we can get slide five, that would be great. This is a, you may not know this scientist, but he was a Venetian scientist in the 15 and 1600s, and he pioneered the study of metabolism and studying how the body works, and he figured out that. We take in more than we let out when we expel waste. Uh, And he did it by living on a scale he built for 30 years. Uh, And this is uh, uh, printed in London, as you can see. A lovely, lovely uh, artist's rendering of what Santoro Santori was doing. uh, Painstakingly writing down uh, the weights of everything that he consumed and drank and everything he let out. Uh, That's the closest
1: a man ever felt like being a woman. <laughs> <laughs> this is Tootsie. <laughs>
0: and as has the mic reached our, our person here, uh, give us your name and, and let's hear about it.
5: Yeah, my name's Ben, I'm from Bristol Palace. Um, oh, right on. Yeah, a little bit more about uh, Isaac Newton, really. I think the, the alchemy thing, uh, as a result of it, he had something like 40 times the amount of mercury than he should have done uh, for someone around at that time, and that kind of contributed a lot they think now to the way that he, his mind worked, having that amount of mercury that he was exposed to. And so he used to just wake up and stare at his feet for hours. I mean, you know, we've all been there as students, but I think he was like <laughs> doing it to into, into the way of his life. But his principle came about because there was a bet that was held between various members of the Royal Society at the time, so Christopher Wren and Halley as in Halley's Comet, and... Uh, Christopher Wren, who was an astronomer first, I mean, he, was, he came up with the, uh, you know, he's remembered for his architecture, but he was actually really into astronomy. Uh, that oh. was his number one passion and love. And he sort of was obsessed with why planets move around in an elliptical orbit. So he said, right here, you know, 40 shillings to anyone who can tell me why this happens. So Halley became obsessed with finding the answer and getting his 40 shillings, because yeah. he really needed them. Um, and uh, he, so he, uh, you know, how they kind of going around, can't figure it out. So he goes to Newton and says, "I need to, I need to solve this." And Newton goes, "Oh, I already know." So well, "What do you mean you already know?" He's like, uh, "Yeah, I've wrote it down somewhere." He goes, "Look, yeah. <laughs> you got it?" <laughs> uh, no, I, 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 said, and, and I think Bill has said this is like having the cure for cancer and leaving it on a bus. <laughs> um, so he, eventually Newton's like well I can't find it I've had to look in all the papers sorry I've not got it so he then goes and, um, and goes away for two years and writes the principle which obviously defines his legacy to, to this day um, but the, um, he, he knew how good he was when he was writing it and he wrote yeah. it deliberately really hard to understand because he didn't want to be bothered by fans you know what like, fanboys obsessively getting them <laughs> on the streets of London and being like sign my book of the principal so he, uh,
0: he wrote it really really hard so he wouldn't well, be bothered by smatters yeah. so, so he was yeah he was like I, I don't need fans I've got mercury like that such a weird way to live love it uh, <laughs> uh, and one time for Ben folks come on that was great I think we had some next people toward the, the front here maybe is that right My
6: name's Dan Um, It's a a little bit of a footnote to the um, Space Odyssey thing, the idea of specifically relating it to London. The original obelisk was going to be a transparent, translucent block, uh, which was made and the film director originally didn't quite like, and it now is in St Catherine's Dock, mounted on the side of a building, with a sculpture in the side of it, with a, uh, a royal crown lit in from behind above a cash machine (laughs) <laughs> um, and they, they, they really? looked at the original block which is the large piece of perspex or whatever the chemical name of the original block that was made that had ever been cast at the time but they, uh, they the people making film didn't quite like us, they made the uh, gigantic black block in, uh, in set uh, so I was just wondering if there was one thing that you could change I know this is more of a film question than a scientific <laughs> question if there's one thing you could change by the way science is perceived by the masks, oh. what would you
0: change? Well, I, I'm, still, I'm still not over, so the, the clear monolith that they originally tried out is now on the side of a building with a crown pattern in it, in London? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, have to, uh, oh, I, I, I you know have I'm running over your capital question, capital? but holy shit. Awesome.
6: Yeah, I know uh, yeah. oh, no, when you look at it now, you can definitely see that they made the right choice by not using it. <laughs> But, like, if you change something
1: about it, the way science is perceived in modern films... Oh, oh in movies. Programmers aren't just doing this. <laughs> 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 Programming <laughs> is just going on GitHub, copying and pasting 99% of it. Uh.
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So, do you, so programmers don't finish something, put their hands behind their head, and say, I'm in. That's yeah. not a thing? <laughs> <laughs> That's not a deal? They do? I see. I understand.
1: (laughs) I'm not hacking into the (laughs) mainframe.
0: It does. It does seem like almost like that programming thing. All science in movies has to be extremely visual, and and also has to be has to be a eureka, like like the the Archimedes story where he he runs out of a bathtub shouting it. But you'd censor it in a film because he's naked. <laughs> uh, but you know what I mean. It seems. It seems like I, I wish there was. I think it's driven by narrative itself too. That we want stuff to be fast and one explosive moment. But but science is so much of this grinding and putting needles in your eye and, and cooking the horse stung and everything, you
2: know? It's a lot of work. And some not gross work, sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I, th- I think that's the lovely thing about, you know, sh- I know a lot of people didn't seem to like Interstellar. I love Interstellar. I think it's a really absolutely superb film. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, what I love is the idea that we have reached a point now where increasingly the science in films is actually from real science. But and, they s-
1: started a whole organization for that in America, didn't they? Mm. And there's a hotline in Hollywood where you call and you say, hi, I need this type of scientist. And that's how interstellar science was so like accurate, because of that organization. I don't remember its name, but...
0: But I, I've heard of that yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's supposed sorry, to be bad
2: no no it's, it's, it's uh, no, but I, I love that what I also love though is that there will always be a point in a film where they go except this bit otherwise it gets too boring <laughs> so it, it, Interstellar is, is reasonably exact to Kip Thorne kind of and, and those others I, I, but there was one bit where he had a huge argument with Christopher Nolan and Christopher Nolan went nah but you know what this makes the scene so much better if the scene really is hugely improved then the si- <laughs> in the same way The Martian you know Andy Weir wrote The Martian and he wanted it to be a scientifically accurate idea of what would happen if you were trapped on mars and how you might survive except the very first incident that causes him to be trapped on mars is something that would never happen on mars so it's like you know the, and i like those kind of there was sean carroll who is is a, is a brilliant physicist and and also writes. i mean he writes god the books are hard to someone like with my brain and uh, he he does stuff in la where he was my favorite thing is he was a scientific advisor on the film thor and i said sean can i just ask you you were su- on on the film <laughs> Thor. <laughs> yes. And, and he looked a little bit annoyed. And he went, Yeah, yeah, I was. I said, Yeah, what were you? He said, Well, what they wanted to do was make sure that the wormhole that the gods of Asgard traveled through True. was as authentic as possible. <laughs> like, oh, that to me is a very. Be- Unfortunately, Richard Dawkins has also been added as advisor, and Thor's not in it anymore. (laughs) The God of Asgard on it's all over. That's that's it.
3: (laughs) It's just
0: Natalie Portman on Earth shopping, or or, you know, hanging out, (laughs) eating meals.
3: Uh, Hi, I'm Joe. Hey, Joe. Uh, I just want to share a quick story about Vladimir Gavro, who's a lesser known French scientist. Basically, pioneer of infrasound research, infrasound being sort of sub-20, sub-40 hertz. Basically, sounds so low mm. that you can't actually hear it. I think, in fact, Michael Swain did a video about how people have uh, misconceptions about it being used in, exper- like, haunting experiences, basically. Yes, It has lots yeah. of very weird psychological and physiological effects. Anyway, Gavro had this idea of uh, weaponizing it back in the 60s. He was a, a French scientist of Russian descent, obviously terrified by blitzkrieg at the time. Or back in the 40s, anyway. Wow. Um, so his idea was he was going to basically build these massive, like, three-metre-wide tin whistles, which would all be so electric, and you would then have a building which would turn into a massive resonating chamber. The first time they tested it, imagine the sort of... I, well, I like to imagine the end of Doctor No, but where you've got, like, guys turn, desperately trying to turn off this massive vibrating machine just pumping <laughs> sort of out, insanely deep dubstep. People <laughs> um, like, are falling around, you've got somebody doubled up because you've obviously hit the brown note as well at that point as well. Um, but yeah, Gavro's done some fascinating I mean, he originally discovered this stuff because he left a window open in the building he was working in and everyone got sick because it turned into a massive resonating chamber. But, uh,
0: but yeah. That is so cool. And yeah, an infrasound, it really is, the, I, I'm glad you bring up that swim thing and everything, because it really is something that leads people to think a ghost is around. They get a spooky feeling. It's just because it's such a, such a low decibel level that we can't uh, hear it as sound.
1: They should use that in like amusement parks, spooky yeah, rides. They do. do they?
3: Yeah, also, Gaspar No film, uh, Irreversible, which has got the notorious rape sequence with Monica Bellucci, Monica Bellucci that uses infrasound in its soundtrack in order to make you feel really, really wow. uncomfortable throughout the whole sequence. Um, yeah, it, it's really, really crazy stuff. Um, you can see it in a lot of modern films as well, like they'll often put very, very subtle sub bass into soundtracks when you want to make something really sort of ominous, basically. Um, but well. I mean, you're basically just building a huge subwoofer and then going <laughs> lower than that subwoofer can actually go. So it's, yeah, I mean, part yeah. of the reason why organs are meant to be really inspiring for playing music on is because you're in a massive chamber with a huge wind instrument and the whole building's shaking. Yeah.
0: That's also, I feel like if you're an infrasound scientist, somebody's, like, once you start to feel more terrified, you know it's working, right? Like, it's... <laughs> 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 How's it going? Great. I'm so scared. <laughs> I really am
4: freaking out. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Simon. Hi, my, Simon. my story actually links back to two things. One is the uh, sound, uh, story about sound actually just then, but also about the science museum. There's an incredible building just across the street which is actually archive. Or everything the science museum actually owns. There's different floors dedicated to different parts of science. And there's a chemistry basement, which many of the parties are not allowed to go into because they have no idea what's in the, in the actual <laughs> jars. Um, so it's sort all of just sit there in this kind of locked up chamber forevermore. Who knows what that will be. But the thing that actually just resonates with me that um, there is a piece of stained glass window in that science museum yeah. that is dedicated to the fact that when Concord was developed, it was basically banned by the church. They were banned because they were worried about the fact that the speed of sound being broken was going to literally decimate the entire of the stained glass windows of churches in the UK. And wow. so I thought they, they
1: were going to go so high and kill the angels. Well, yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well they basically, yeah, The brown note would have been played is what they were worried about for the angels. But I think the key thing is that they basically had to do a test, and so they found this church where they literally did the test with breaking the sound like see what happened. And they've got in the Science Museum Archive, they've got the original piece of stained glass that stayed alive, basically, all stayed intact, let's just say. Um, and that is how they basically passed it through so they could actually have the Concorde flying. And that's actually there. And it was the most random thing sort of seeing as i got Lucky taken through a cu- with the curator, saying there's a stained glass window in the middle of the aeroplane section, and that's why. But it's interesting sort of thinking, that sound itself is the reason why the church almost bought Concorde.
1: So. <laughs> Wow. That's amazing.
4: Give it up for Simon, folks, please.
0: And I think that is our show. Please keep it going for Olga Koch and Robin Ince. My God, they were fantastic. Can you believe it? Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Olga Koch and Robin Ince for diving straight into that episode with me, an American stranger. Very nice. Also, thanks to our audience for making it so special. And in our footnotes, here is some extra value our audience added to the show. I got to meet lots of listeners after the show, which which was amazing, like British fans of the show. So great. And one of them, uh, her name was Fernanda, and she was really great and also mentioned the uh, worth mentioning thing that everybody we talked about in these stories of scientists was male. They were all men. Maybe some of the Pythagorean cult members were women, but that doesn't really count. And that's an excellent point. And the thing is, in prepping this episode, which was almost primarily about scientists being incredibly eccentric and getting away with it, we only had really one story of a female scientist, and it's about them being awesome. Marie Curie, very well-known scientist, like all the others we talked about on this show, uh, she was born in 1867, and in late 1800s Poland, there was a thing going on where the country had been partitioned by a couple other powers, the Russians and the Germans, uh, specifically the Prussians early on, uh, and then also Austria-Hungary. Uh, all three of those partitioned Poland into pieces and took over one or the other for themselves. And because of that, the Polish education system was sort of shut down to be replaced by each other country's version of education to try to Russianize or Germanize or Austrianized, I suppose, uh, the, the Polish people. Upshot of all that, not only was Marie Curie a woman, she was also a Polish woman. And so it was very hard to get uh, an education and also not a nationalist Russian education in her life. And so the amazing story about her is that she went to something called the Flying University, which is an amazing thing that educated a lot of people. And it was called the Flying University because it had no building and was a secret. It, quote unquote, flew from house to house to building to, I don't know, barns, wherever you could do it. And so that's where she got her early education. Uh, Later, she would move to France and dive into uh, French university training and at least keep her head above water, as far as I can tell, because she kept on going from there and became a a Nobel laureate and one of the most important scientists ever. But so the the stories we found about female scientists tended to be that, where they're just amazing, where it's Marie Curie getting an education from a secret uh, Polish resistance school. Really, really cool and so uh, I think the male heaviness of the subjects that we had on this episode also speaks to the broader sexism of history. A lot of these men that we talked about could get away with cooking their semen and horse stung in a test tube because, you know, that's just boys, right? Boys being boys. That's the way it is. Uh, and so I think that's what the balance of it is. And I love getting to do these live episodes because very, very astute, smart listeners will point stuff out like that, like that gender balance and who we talked about. And there you go. That's kind of some bonus podcast, right? Now you know that about Marie Curie. And if you want even more info on the scientists we talked about today, that is fully linked in the footnotes, notes, as well as all the different various visual things that we looked at. You can see Isaac Newton's notes of putting a needle into his eye, and you can see, uh, see also some things that are not body horror that we looked at and really enjoyed on the night. There is also, of course, more info on our fantastic guests. You will see Olga Koch's latest uh, newest shows coming up. You will see Robin Ince's book. It's titled I Am a Joke and So Are You. I highly, highly recommend it, especially if you have any interest in comedians and their minds and how they work and where they come from. And also, I'm sure many of you know of Robin Ince because of his work with Professor Brian Cox on their show The Infinite Monkey Cage. That show is on tour and going basically everywhere in the world. So there are uh, links to get tickets to that. I'm sure they're coming to a city near you, and I hope you'll check it out. And beyond all that, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. This episode was engineered by the wonderful team at the London Podcast Festival, and it was edited by the wonderful Chris Souza. There are many, many other people to thank for, for making this live London Podcast Festival show happen. To name a few, thank you to Sally Hollingsworth, Zoe J.S., Hannah Crichton, Cody Fisher, Colin Anderson, Marissa Morales, Hannah Stifle, Jared O'Connell, Emily Weckback, Bo Schurman, and the hardworking staff at the Friar's Delight at Theobald's Road in Hoburn, the best dang chip shop in London. I love it. I ate there maybe too much, but I did it. And if you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media, the space where I solicit requests for live cracked podcasts in new cities. Like we we got a lot of tweets from the UK before we decided to book that show in the UK at the London Podcast Festival. Uh, So your city could be next if you ask for it on Twitter is the best way to reach me. And uh, if you get friends too as well, you know, strengthen numbers, there you go. My Twitter account for those requests is at Alex Schmidty. My Instagram is at Alec Schmidstagram, and I'm on the wider internet at my website, alecschmidty.com. That's got my show dates, my fun email newsletter of free internet stuff tips, and more. And I'm here to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then.